uh, to, by way of concluding various trains of thought, which we have been following this weekend, I want to read a few things from Master Kripal and a few things from Sanchi. Uh, nothing very long, which kind of, between them, I think, tie up the various streams that we have, threads maybe a better analogy, that we have been exploring. This is, again, a very famous section of Master Kapal's writing from the book, The Way of the Saints. Uh, it's one of my favorites, and I've read it many times, from The Essence of Religion, um, in which he is very roundly puts the basis of everything. He says, all the religions agree. This was, a, this was of course, the presidential address uh, at the Third World Religions Conference in New Delhi on February 26, 1965. Judith and I were there, and we heard him give this speech, but of course he gave it in Hindi. And uh, we couldn't follow it until we saw that the English version was available the next day. Um, there was no translator possible. All the religions agree that life, light, and love are the three phases of the supreme source of all that exists. These essential attributes of the divinity that is one though designated differently by the prophets and peoples of the world, are also wrought in the very pattern of every sentient being. It is in this vast ocean of love, light, and life that we live, have our very being, and move about. And yet, strange as it may seem, like the proverbial fish in water, we do not know this truth and much less practice it in our daily life. And hence the endless fear, helplessness, and misery that we see around us in the world in spite of all our laudable efforts and sincere strivings to get rid of them. Love is the only touchstone wherewith we can measure our understanding of the twin principles of life and light in us and how far we have traveled on the path of self-knowledge and God-knowledge. God is love. The soul in man is a spark of that love. And love, again, is the link between God and man on the one hand and man and God's creation on the other. It is therefore said... He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Similarly, Guru Gobind Singh says, Verily I say unto thee, that he whose heart is bubbling over with love, he alone shall find God. Love, in a nutshell, is the fulfillment of the law of life and light. All the prophets, all the religions, and all the scriptures hang on two commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Questioned as to our attitude toward our enemies, Christ said, Love thine enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father in heaven. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect." With the yardstick of love, the very essence of God's character, with us, let us probe our hearts. Is our life an efflorescence of God's love? Are we ready to serve one another with love? 
Do we keep our hearts open to the healthy influences coming from outside? Are we patient and tolerant toward those who differ from us? Are our minds coextensive with the creation of God and ready to embrace the totality of his being? Do we bleed inwardly at the sight of the downtrodden and the depressed? Do we pray for the sick and suffering humanity? If we do not do any of these things, we are yet far removed from God and from religion, no matter how loud we may be in our talk and pious in our platitudes and pompous in our proclamations. With all our inner craving for peace, we have failed and failed hopelessly to serve the cause of God's peace on earth. Ends and means are interlocked and cannot be separated from each other. We cannot have peace so long as we try to achieve it with warlike means and with the weapons of destruction and extinction. With the germs of hatred in our hearts, racial and color bars rankling within us, thoughts of political domination and economic exploitation surging in our bloodstream, we are working for wrecking the social structure which we have so strenuously built and not for peace unless it be peace of the grave, but certainly not for a living peace born of mutual love and respect, trust and concord that may go to ameliorate mankind and transform this earth into a paradise for which we so fervently pray and preach from pulpits and platforms, and yet as we proceed, it recedes away into the distant horizon. Where then lies the remedy? Is the disease past all cure? No, it is not so. Life and light of God are still there to help and guide us in the wilderness. We see this wilderness around us because we are bewildered in the heart of our hearts and do not see things in their proper perspective. This vast outer world is nothing but a reflex of our own little world within us. The seeds of discord and disharmony in the soil of our mind bear fruit in and around us and do so in abundance. We are what we think and see the world with the smoke-colored glasses that we choose to put on. It is a proof positive of one thing only, that we have so far not known the life and light of God and much less realized God in man. We are off-center in the game of life. We are playing it at the circumference only and never have a dip in the deepest waters of life at the center. This is why we constantly find ourselves caught in the vortex of the swirling waters on the surface. The life at the circumference of our being is in fact not different from the life at the center of our being. The two are in fact not unidentical. Yet when one is divorced from the other, they look dissimilar. Hence the strange paradox. The physical life, though a manifestation of God, is full of toil and turmoil, storm and stress, dissipation and disruption. In our enthusiasm and zest for outer life on the plane of the senses, we have strayed too far away from our center Nay, we have altogether lost sight of it, and worse still, have cut the very moorings of our bark, and no wonder then we find ourselves tossing helplessly on the sea of life. Rudderless and without a compass to guide our course, we are unwittingly a prey to chance winds and waters, and cannot see the shoals, the sandbanks, and the submerged rocks with which our way is strewn. In this frightful plight, we are drifting along the onrushing current of life where we don't know. This world, after all, is not and cannot be so bad as we take it to be. 
It is a manifestation of the life principle of the Creator and is being sustained by His light. His love is at the bottom of all this. The world with its various religions is made for us and we are to benefit from them. One cannot learn swimming on dry land. All that we have to do is to correctly learn and understand the basic live truths as are embodied in our scriptures and practice them carefully under the guidance of some theocentric saint. These scriptures came into being by God-inspired prophets and as such some God-intoxicated person or a God-man can give us a proper interpretation of them, initiate us into their right import by reconciling the seeming discrepancies in thought and finally help us inwardly on the God path. And I want to conclude uh, with this final paragraph. All of our religions are, after all, an expression of the inner urge felt by man from time to time to find a way out of the discord without into the halcyon calm of the soul within. The light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. But we are so constituted by nature that we feel restless until we find a rest in the causeless cause. If we live up to our scriptures and realize the light and life of God within us, then surely as day follows the night, love would reign supreme in the universe and we will see nothing but the unseen hand of God working everywhere. We must then sit together as members of the one great family of man so that we may understand each other. We are above everything else one, from the level of God as our Father, from the level of man as his children, and from the level of worshipers of the same truth or power of God called by so many names. In this august assembly of the spiritually awakened, we can learn the great truth of oneness of life vibrating in the universe. If we do this, then surely this world with so many forms and colors will appear a veritable handiwork of God and we shall verily perceive the same life impulse in living all of us. As his own dear children embedded in him, like so many roses in his rosebed, let us join together in sweet remembrance of God and pray to him for the well-being of the world in this hour of imminent danger of annihilation that stares us in the face. May God, in his infinite mercy, save us all, whether we deserve it or not. And I want to um, add to that a remarkable, very brief paragraph uh, from the book, The Light of Kripal, which, by the way, contains many, many very interesting things. Uh, Master makes many offhand comments in the course of the book that are extremely interesting in their implications. And implications of the teaching is one of the things that I want to think about today. This is uh, a morning darshan from March 20th, 1971. And someone asks a question. Master, you say we should mind our own business. When we see some people fighting or satsangis arguing or animals fighting, do you think we should break up people arguing? And Master says, you are now talking about three fights. One, one between animals, two between ordinary men, three between satsangis. As for animals, I think they'll just kill you with their horns if you interfere. <laughs> he, he chuckles. 
But even animals may sometimes give in by sweet tapping. But among the satsangis, everybody is a satsangi. I don't regard anybody as a non-satsangi because sat is there within everybody already. The only difference is that you have been given a way within, a clue, a contact with that. Others have the same privilege from God, but they have not yet been given a contact, that's all. So when you find fighting like that, kind words don't cost anything. Woo them by persuasion. Well, look here, it does not behoove a man like you to act in such a manner, and so forth. But the point, I think that's a very significant statement, and it... Um, bears out what I was saying yesterday. Everybody is a satsangi. I don't regard anybody as a non-satsangi because sat is there within everybody already. And uh, I want to read a couple of brief sections from Sanchi's book In the Palace of Love. Again, these are very sections that I have read many times because they're among my favorites. Um, this follows, I think, from the point that everyone is a satsangi, even though it seems different. Um, because the fact is that we don't know who we're dealing with ever. And this is a story that both Sanchi and Master Kripal have told um, more than once. There was an old woman who worshipped idols. With all her love and devotion, she would burn incense and perform the ritual. One day a thought came to her. Today I will not eat any food until God accepts some part of it. So she sat there with this determination in her mind. She had some milk in a golden cup and some other food also, and she offered them to the idol and sat there waiting for God to accept some part of it. Now God Almighty thought, look at the determination of this woman. You know that idols cannot speak or eat, so how is that idol going to accept any food? But God Almighty was pleased with her devotion, so he came in the form of a very old crippled man, knocked at her door, and asked her to give him some food. He said, I am in difficulty. I need clothes and food. Why don't you give me something? She replied, I don't have any food. Whatever food I had, I put it in front of this God, and I cannot give you anything unless he accepts part of it. So he went away. Again, God Almighty came in the form of a poor old man, poorer than the other one. And he said, I have pain in my stomach. If you would make me some tea, the pain would go away and I'll be very grateful to you. She said, I don't have any milk to make tea. I only have the milk which I have placed before God. And unless he accepts part of it, I cannot do anything with it and I cannot make tea. So he also went away. Now just imagine, if that woman had known that God Almighty resides in every being, in every creature, she would not have refused both those old men who in fact were God Almighty. She would have given them food and tea, but she did not know that God Almighty resides in every being. She did not have that understanding. That is why she did not oblige. She did not give food to the living God because she was waiting for the idol to accept it. And I think that covers a lot of human misbehavior. She did not give food to the living God because she was waiting for the idol to accept it. And I also want to read briefly the section from this book about fear. Um, 
the leaders of the religions which we have adopted according to our bodies understand that their religion is the only religion. And those leaders whom we call brave ones or warriors make us fight with other people. And in order to protect that religion, we kill others and call our religious leaders brave ones. But Guru Nanak and Kabir do not call such people brave warriors. They say that those who control their bodies, their minds, their organs of senses, and their organs of action, they are the brave warriors. Guru Nanak Dev Ji Maharaj says, victory over the mind is victory over the world. If you conquer your mind, you please the Creator. The Master says, call him a warrior who fights in the battlefield for his own religion. He who does not turn his back and who lets his body be cut in pieces for the sake of religion, he is a brave warrior. What is our religion? Our religion is the religion of our soul, the religion of God. In Sukhmani Sahib, Guru Arjan Dev Ji Maharaj has written that the real religion is the religion of the soul. Kabir says, when the trumpet is blown, get up and go to the battlefield. This is the time to fight. He is saying that when the inner sound is manifested, we should get up. In this human birth only can we fight. Where is our battlefield? The eye center or Tizra Till is our battlefield. Guru Nanak says, even though you have to fight with five warriors, still the hand of the perfect master is on your back. He is saying that when we reach out the eye center, our master, who has armed us with the weapon of Shabad or the sound current, makes us fight with the five passions, lust, anger, and the others. And even though they are very powerful, still we have the hand of our Satguru on our back. And since those who go within know how the perfect master who has armed us with the Shabad Nam helps us and supports us while we fight those passions. Kabir Sahib says, I don't call warriors those people who fight with swords, guns, and bullets, and who kill others. I call warriors those who fight with the five passions, taking the weapons and support of the master. Saints do not become, do not make anyone weak-hearted. Earlier I asked, who becomes fearless? Who is afraid? Only those who commit sins are involved in fear. Those who do not do sins become fearless. His fear is written in the fate of all creation. Nanak says the true formless one is the only one without fear. Now he says that fear is written in the fate of all jivas when they are born. If there is anyone fearless who is not involved in fear or affected by it, it is the timeless, almighty Lord. And Guru Nanak says that those who become the beloveds of that God neither frighten anyone nor are afraid of anyone. In the beginning at the ashram in 77 RB, one of our Western dear ones asked me, what is the greatest sin? I replied, to be afraid of anything is the greatest sin. And... I want to also mention earlier Sanchi had said, actually in June 1984, in response to a question from a UPI reporter, the principle of Santmat is this, don't be afraid of anybody and don't make other people afraid. One should not allow oneself to be intimidated by anybody and one should not intimidate others. And it's important, if we think about the question of sin and being afraid, we do should remember what sin is. Uh, in the Bible, you know, and I've often said this before, 
in the New Testament, um, the Greek word that is used is hamartia, which means missing the mark. It's a technical term from archery, and it refers to uh, an arrow aimed at a target and not hitting it. So that is how, if we every place in the Bible where sin is mentioned, we substitute for that word sin, missing the mark, we would get a much better sense of what is intended. And the, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament also means basically mistake. And whenever the masters refer to uh, bad things that we do, more often than not, they will call them mistakes. You will find Sanchi uses the word mistake over and over and over in his course, in his discourses. And the other thing about sin, of course, that Master has pointed out is he defined it himself in the uh, book, The Wheel of Life, as forgetting of origin. And if we remember, this is, of course, the point of doing Simran, of having the sweet remembrance of God. And when we sit for meditation and do Simran, we are, in fact, remembering our origin. That is what, psychologically and cosmologically, that is what we are really doing. Uh, when we forget who we really are, who... Uh, made us, who loves us, and who wants us to come back to him, then we do things that we later wish we hadn't. And uh, we miss the point. We miss the point of our existence. And that is basically um, what uh, we would be better off not doing. Uh, in conclusion, I do want to read the final circular letter that Master Kripal Singh issued in his life on May 15, 1974. And it was his last circular letter issued just three months before his passing. So I think it is of very great importance that we understand that this is what he left us with. I do, I have found... Um, an enormous help, just speaking personally, in studying the writings of any master, um, in reading what their farewell speaking or writing was. Uh, I mentioned yesterday about the farewell discourse of Christ and how Master Kripal had memorized it and how he used it in the talk that we read from yesterday. and. Um, Similarly, uh, farewell talks, even when you know leaving the country or whatever, uh, I find it very interesting. And Sanchi's farewell darshan to the group in February uh, 1997, which a number of people that are here now were there in that group, uh, is a case in point. I mean, that really is a farewell. Uh, in every sense of the word. And this is Master's Farewell Circular. And the implications, I mean, when Master says, you know, that he refuses to draw a distinction between satsangis and other people, this is a super important point. Because it doesn't take a particular a lot amount of brain power to recognize that the teachings of the masters are universalist. And universalism, as it is called, has two aspects. One is that everyone in this world will be saved eventually. And the other is that all religions and belief systems ultimately come out of truth and lead back into it. Both points made by the Master many, many times. And uh, we know he devoted much of his life to um, demonstrating that all religions are one. And his point that everyone will be taken back to God eventually is 
actually follows very logically from uh, the point that we are all children of God. Because what father or mother is going to abandon any children just because um, they don't know enough to come when they're called? I mean, we don't say, all right, let him go get run over by a car or something. You know, we don't do that. We go get our kids because we love them and they're ours. And that's exactly um, what God does with all of us. And sooner or later, we will all come back to him and not, of course, just human beings either. Uh, as Master said earlier, all sentient life will... Um, come back to him. So this circular on the unity of man, Master goes into some of these things, these implications of his teaching, which I think are of the absolute utmost importance at this particular time of the world. The spiritual revolution that Master referred to is, of course, hasn't begun yet as far as we know. Uh, it seems and maybe is a long ways away. Nevertheless, Master talked consistently as though it was imminent, and uh, which means to me that it may be, it can be, that there is a choice involved on the part of people. If we want it to happen, it can happen. If those of us who know enough, who have been given a clue, a contact, as Master said earlier, um, live up to the implications of that which we have been given, then uh, maybe it will happen. But this is what Bastyr is after, what he wants to happen. All right, he says, one, man, the highest rung of all creation, is basically the same everywhere. All men, and of course he means human beings very specifically, are born. By the way, I, Master used the English word man often referred to, in referring to specific women. He, he is it totally gender free. I, told, I mentioned yesterday that the Urdu word insan, which is the word that was native to him to refer to human beings, is gender-free and should be translated human being, just like the corresponding words in the Bible. Uh, in Hebrew, Adam, which is, of course, our, we've made the proper name Adam, uh, means human being, does not mean man, male. And in Greek, the New Testament, the word anthropos is, uh, should be translated human being. Male, man and woman, in our English sense, are Anair and Gane, very separate, very distinct words. It's important because a lot of misunderstanding has developed because of the English language, the way in which man is, um, becomes the equivalent of human being. And Master, although he followed the English usage in this, uh, was wildly inconsistent with the way, in the way that he used it in individual sense. I remember once uh, when we got to India in 1969, uh, I had gone over with two other people from New Hampshire, uh, a man and a woman, and they were both, uh, they were both living at St. Bonnie at the time. And they were actually the first two people that I had uh, ever given the initiation instructions to. As a, it was kind of funny that way, because Master authorized me to give initiation in 1967. And uh, I gave to the, the gentleman I gave initiation to uh, at that time, and then the lady I gave to a few months later. And they accompanied me to India in 1969. Anyway, Master was talking to us after we arrived, and he, he talked to me some, and then he talked to Tom, the guy. And then he looked straight at Laura, and he said, um, and you, third man. And it seemed very, she is a very, very feminine type person. and. 
it was it would have been incongruous if it had been anyone other than Master. But from his point of view, she was a man. There was no difference. He saw no difference. Anyway, long side point, but... Um, all men are the same as souls, worship the same God, and are conscious entities, being of the same essence as God. They are members of his family and thus related to each other as brothers and sisters in him. And he is speaking now not of initiates, but of everybody, all human beings. Two. All awakened and enlightened gurus and spiritual teachers who came to this world at various points of time and in various parts have invariably emphasized this truth in their own language and manner. According to them, all men, despite their distinctive social orders and denominational religions, form but one class. Three. Guru Nanak, the great teacher and messiah of peace, said the highest order is to rise into universal brotherhood. I, to consider all creation your equal. Four, India's ancient mantra, Vasudeva Kutumbukam, also lays down the same principle, that the whole world is one family. However, it is common knowledge that despite long and loud preaching by various religious and social leaders professing the unity of man, the world today is torn by strains and tensions of every kind and presents a sorrowful spectacle indeed. More often than not, we see individuals at war with one another and brothers at drawn daggers with their own kith and kin. Similarly, nations are constantly involved in conflicts and clashes with each other, thus spoiling the peace and tranquility. It seems that the root cause of this present-day situation is that the gospel of unity of man, however well accepted in theory, has not struck home to humanity at large and is not put into practice. It is only a form of slogan-mongering done with calculated motives. Five, it is universally accepted that the highest purpose of this human body is to achieve union of the soul with the oversoul or God. It is on this account that the physical body is said to be the true temple of God wherein he himself resides. All religions spell out the ways and means of meeting the Oversoul or God, and all the ways and means so suggested, however different looking, lead to the same destination, so that one need not change from one religion to another for this purpose. One has only to steadfastly and genuinely tread upon the lines drawn by the torchbearers for achieving the goal. Six, it is necessary, however, that greater effort should be made toward the realization of unity of man. We have to realize that every human being is as much a member of the brotherhood as we are and is obviously entitled to the same rights and privileges as are available to us. We must therefore make sure that while our own children make merry, our neighbor's son does not go without food. And if we really practice this, much present-day conflict will be eliminated. Each of us will develop mutual recognition, respect, and understanding for the other, thus wiping out the gross inequities of life. In this process, as the mutual recognition and understanding develops, it becomes a vital force generating a reservoir of fellow feeling, which in turn will bring culture and ultimately humility, the basic need of the hour. Seven. 
the holding of the World Conference on Unity of Man in February 1974 in New Delhi was a clarion call to the world. This conference was perhaps the first of its kind since the time of Ashoka the Great, held at the level of man with the noble purpose of fostering universal brotherhood leading to universal harmony. This message of the unity of man must reach every human heart, irrespective of religious and social labels, so that it comes home to every individual, enabling him to actually put it in practice in life and pass it on to others. In this way, the entire human society could be reformed. Truly speaking, unity already exists. As man, born in the same way, with the same privileges from God, and as soul, a drop of the ocean of all consciousness called God, whom we worship by various names. But we have forgotten this unity. The lesson has only to be revived. Eight, the so-called worldwide campaign for unity of man is not intended to affect the existing social and religious orders in any manner. In fact, each one has to continue to work for the upliftment of man in its own way as before. Additionally, however, this campaign has to carry the clarion call of unity of man to as large a mass of humanity through its own vehicle as it can, so that the message cuts across the barriers of misunderstanding and mutual distrust and strikes home to every human heart. Further, the said campaign has to be carried out not by intellectual wrestling, but with optimum desire and anxiety to put the unity of man into practice so that it becomes a real living force. The method of propagation has to be by self-discipline and self-example rather than by declarations and proclamations. Nine, it would be prudent to clarify that the campaign for unity of man has to be carried out above the level of religions without in any way affecting any religious or social orders. It has to obtain and practice the blessings and support of all those who believe in the gospel of unity of man and could give it strength by taking this gospel to every human heart around them and convincing them of the need of its acceptance in daily life. It will neither be tagged with Ruhani Satsang nor with any other similar organization. The enthusiasm of its admirers will be the real force working behind the campaign. 10. It is therefore earnestly requested that all those who believe in the unity of man and wish to carry its message must work ceaselessly so that it may reach the lonest corner of the world. A world conference on unity of man may be arranged in the West, as was done at Delhi in the East. Both ultimately work as one whole. And I think that uh, this was extremely important to Kripal, and uh, he spent a very large part of the last years of his life, building Manav Kendra, which was another aspect of the same thing, and laying emphasis on this tremendous, overwhelming need for human unity. And if we think over the various things that we have heard this weekend, uh, the love and forgiveness of the Master, uh, the way in which we have to respond, we have to um, do what we can to be open to what he wants to give us, but the recognition of how much he loves us is vital to that. You know, one of my 
very early letters from the master, dating back to October 1961. He wrote me, and this is something that he said to many people, and uh, there are many different versions of this, that um, if we take one step toward him, he takes a million steps toward us. A million. That was what he wrote in that letter. The other places, he said a hundred, uh, a thousand maybe, I don't know. But in the letter to me in October 1961, he actually said millions of, not just one million, but many million. And uh, I thought about that and thought about that. I had been off the path. I had been uh, not very, I had not been following the diet strictly. I had not been meditating. And my son Eric was born in September, September 28, 1961. And Judith wanted to have him at home. And uh, I didn't, but that didn't count for much. And uh, she was very determined. No doctor would come in those days, so I midwifed him myself. And uh, somehow the, the experience of that actually, I'm not sure if it would began just before or just after, but it was certainly a part of it. Um, I had a profound recognition of the love of the master, and I knew that I had to go back on the path. And a day or two after I decided that, I wrote a letter to the master. And uh, a day or two after that, I got a letter back from him. Now in those days, uh, maybe still today, it took months to get letters back and forth to India, at least six weeks. And I thought, my God, this was fast. And I, I opened it up, and of course he had written it before I wrote. And he had written it before I had this, the urge. And he just said, I have been thinking about you and uh, wondering how you were doing. And I hadn't written him for a couple of years. So it was clear to me why I had felt the way I felt. But then he, uh, a month later, the answer to my letter came. And in that letter, he said... Um, if you take one step towards him, he takes millions of steps towards you. And it certainly is true. And um, so if we recognize that, recognize that this is basically a path of love, that love is the core of the universe, and because it is the basic reality, the basic fact of the universe, that, as Master says, this world cannot be so bad as we take it to be because his love is at the bottom of all this. We just heard him say that. And in the course of doing that, um, we see, we get a sense of how the universe is really constructed. And the, the seemingness, as Master says in the talk that we read, it seems to be all mixed up dissipation and disruption, storm and stress. That's certainly how we experience it. But that is because of the way in which we are looking at it. We know from um, uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, Greg has left and not he's not here now, but he would correct me or not, as the case may be, Greg Troll if I were saying this wrong, but because we have talked many times about this. But uh, the principle is that the observer, by virtue of his observation, dictates what is seen. This is in, in the quantum physics. When you get down into microscopic stuff, this is a basic fact. You cannot watch anything without affecting it. And so it is with the macrocosm, you know, when we observe the world from a point of view of the smoke-colored glasses that we have chosen to put on, we see it one way. When we look at it from the point of view of the love that is at the bottom of it all, as Master says, then we see it another way. And uh, the step that we take towards him 
that results in the millions of steps that he takes toward us is basically just this. The, the ability to recognize and eventually to see the force of love that is the core of the universe working at the bottom of it all. And then the recognition of the value, the equal value of all forms of life and all individuals within those forms is an, a part of that recognition of the importance of love or the basic reality of love as the core principle of the universe. So this is, this is what we've been working on. And, um, you know, I, I was in my heart to go into this and I'm still learning I'm still finding stuff. That thing which I read earlier about Master saying that he doesn't draw a <coughs> distinction between satsangis and non-satsangis. I have known that this was his position, and I sometimes said it publicly, but I had never read that particular statement until this morning. Because I have not read the light of Kripal all the way through. I'm now in the process of doing that, and I've just about finished. But... Um, there's a great deal out there that we have not even begun to explore that the Master has given us. So uh, we still learn. You know, we learn, as Master used to say, man learns and unlearns all through life. I am still a student. This was, he would put it that way. Man learns and unlearns all through life. I am still a student. I was there once. And a fellow got very upset when Master said that, and he said, how can the Master say that he is still a student? He's the Master. And Master said, well, look here. If you follow a ray back to the sun, uh, you know that ray. You, 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 you don't have anything more to learn about that ray, but what about all the other rays? He said, I am still a student. And if even he can say that, uh, God knows what we could say. All right, uh, dear friends, it is extremely pleasant for me to be here with you all. I enjoy it enormously. I appreciate your love and uh, understanding, and it helps me very much. So, God bless us all.